Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name's Steve Bloomfield. This week we'll be talking about Tom Watson, Deputy Leader of the Labour Party and the man that many inside the party see as a rival to Jeremy Corbyn. I'll be joined by the political journalist Kevin Maguire, who interviewed Watson in the new issue of the magazine. Before that, though, as ever, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's Arts and Books editor, Samir Rahim. Hello, Samir. Hello. And by our commissioning editor, Alex Dean. Hello, Alex. Hi, Steve. To discuss the latest in culture and politics. Uh, And Alex, we'll start with politics. I guess we have to talk about Brexit. Uh, Let's move the conversation on slightly uh, from where we are right now, because really, frankly, who knows where we are. Um, The big topic uh, you've been talking to people at the moment is about this idea of uh, Boris-proofing Brexit. Uh, Explain to us how you Boris-proof Brexit. So, I mean, the problem, I think, is that you can't. <laughs> and that's, um, you know, ideally, uh, we'd find a way to do it. but it, and, and people are investigating how to do it, but it's proving very difficult. Um, so the idea is basically, Theresa May's been making all these promises on things like workers' rights um, and kind of guarantees, particularly, um, you know, in the news at the moment, because of cross-party talks between the two front benches. Um, and indeed, there's talk about a customs union and, uh, you know, Labour managing to secure that concession from the government. Um, but there's a question of how you actually ensure a government sticks to these promises and whether actually they're worth anything at all. Um, and I think you can make a case that, that really they're not worth anything at all. And a hardline successor, someone like Boris, could always you know, be at liberty to just rip them up. And in a sense, that's democracy, isn't it? Because, of course, if, you know, let's say it's Boris Johnson, he becomes leader of the Tory party, and then there's a general election and then the Conservatives have a majority, then he should be able to uh, to get through Parliament what he wants to get through. And if that's changing the terms of Brexit, so be it. Um, I mean, I think it is democracy to an extent, uh, and it's definitely the way that the British Constitution works, and no Parliament can bind a successor, kind of a majority of one, and uh, you're free to do as you please, but it's basically uh, the system. Um But I just wonder if there is enough understanding and scepticism that, uh, you know, that that is how democracy works. So there's quite a lot of scepticism that these cross-party talks might collapse. I think that's probably justified scepticism. It's my own view. Um, But there doesn't seem to have been equal scepticism applied to the idea that, um, you know, we could come out of these talks with an agreement that's completely meaningless. (laughs) And, 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 for example, on the customs union, that could literally be torn up down the line unless it goes into the binding 
withdrawal agreement, something that isn't on the cards and the EU wouldn't do. And that's one of the things that has been not one of the the major issues that gets much coverage, although you know, we've tried to do bits in the magazine um, about Brexit, is that when we leave the EU, we're leaving a supranational body which guarantees rights. And as soon as we don't have that supranational body that can guarantee rights, then they are only worth the paper they're written on. Yeah, and um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's been all this talk... Um, you know, uh, speaking to some people at the Institute for Government about this kind of thing, and they think about it a lot, um, about how can you actually make some guarantees uh, that are kind of more concrete than just day-to-day legislation. Um, and you can look into doing things like supermajority requirements, where two-thirds of MPs have to vote for to repeal something for it to be repealed. But the problem is, is that the supermajority requirement itself... <laughs> could be repealed by a majority of one. So it seems pretty much impossible um, under our current system to, um, as a prime minister, make guarantees that really are set in stone. And then, of course, we could end up in this really bizarre situation where May's deal squeaks over the line because of promises that she made, um, you know, promises on workers' rights that, for example, swing Labour MPs to support it, squeaks over the line, and then those promises are never enacted. Alex, there's no chance that Jeremy Corbyn is going to save a Brexit deal for the Tories, though, is there? Uh, I think it's unlikely. So I'm sceptical about the talks. I think that, um, you know, from the moment they were announced, you think, well, either May isn't holding them in good faith or Corbyn won't make the most of them or both. (laughs) So is it the case that this is a sort of positioning and sort of telling Tory MPs, well, you could get a very soft Labour inflected Brexit, but guess what? My deal is still on the table. So could we, in fact, see that deal, which has been rejected three times, come back yet again? Yes. <laughs> I still think that the most likely single outcome, it's its unlikely, <laughs> but it's the most likely outcome, is something very close to May's deal passing. I think she might try and bounce us into it before the European election. Or something. She's trying to scare Brexiteers um, by talking to the Labour front bench. Uh, and I think that's all true, but I don't think it changes uh, this question of guarantees, which is the case, whatever happens, it's something we need to think about whatever happens with the talks, because um, May might make guarantees not just to try and convince the Labour front bench, but to try and convince Labour backbenchers, and indeed has been doing that on workers' rights. Okay, there we are. That's what we've got to look forward to after Easter. Meaningful vote for... Is it four? It will be four, won't it? Uh, that's actually a point of contention because <laughs> the last one was, everyone called it 2.5. Oh, yeah, because it wasn't a minimal vote. Okay, fine, fine, fine. When you say everyone, Alex, <laughs> I've never heard that. Everyone I know, yeah. A niche group of people that Alex knows within probably about a one-mile radius of where we're sat right now. Um, okay, well, from one thing potentially rising from the dead to another. Do you like that, Samir? As I said, you've got the mic, so you can choose the links. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Easter. Um, but not just obviously about the the celebration itself, but you've been thinking a lot about religious music and the idea of cultural appropriation and and how that affects us at Easter. Yeah, about uh, seven years ago, I started to go to a St. Matthew Passion um, on Good Friday. And I used to go to um, uh, Hanover Square, St. George's Church there. And I, I really enjoyed it. It's a wonderful piece of music. What's interesting about... The, the passion itself is that, uh, obviously, it's by Bach. Um, it's, a, it's a Lutheran piece of music. It's a very Christian, Protestant piece of music. Um, I'm not Christian. And 
uh, I still enjoyed it as, as as a sort of work of art, really. And I enjoyed going particularly to St. George's because although the work is often set in a sort of secular sense, you could go to sort of the Barbican and, and listen to it. I quite like the idea of seeing it in something like its original context. So it's part of a sort of sermon, uh, sort of part of a, a longer ceremony. There's a sermon. Um, you don't clap. Um, when I went there the first time, I was given sort of lots of literature about, you know, whether I wanted to convert to Christianity and, and the rest of it. And, and I quite liked that, really, because I, I, I felt it gave some sense of meaning or authenticity um, to the performance. But I wonder really whether somebody who doesn't actually believe um, in the way that Bach believed or in a way that it seemed that lots of people in the audience um, with me, the congregation really, not the audience, um, believed, whether I was in fact sort of missing out or there was something that was missing in my understanding or interpretation. And I think there probably is. Um, and I think that's that's sort of fine, really. I think if you have, um, particularly with religious music, which has such powerful associations for people, um, for you know, it's a form of worship for some people. Um, and I just enjoyed it as a fantastic story um, and as something that, you could feel incredibly moved by. Isn't it just a little bit like, you know, a bit more highbrow, but a bit like going to a carol service at Christmas? You know, you don't have to believe to to sing along and, and feel part of it. Yes, and I went to St Paul's uh, carol service uh year before last, actually, and that was a really nice experience as well. Because um, there's something about the atmosphere of everyone coming together singing these wonderful carols i think even richard dawkins says that you know he he likes to belt out a good carol at christmas time oh, there we are so there's, there's space there's space for us all um i had it had the other experience from the other way around actually about a month ago when i went to the barbican in fact to see the um some sufi koali music um i saw the rizwan was um uh, uh group and this was two and a half hours of uh urdu and punjabi um, music which is uh, very Sufi and Islamic influenced um, and I, I really enjoyed it and I think I enjoyed it probably more because it's the religious tradition that I'm from. I saw other people in the audience who were sort of checking their iPhones and knocking back beers and things like that and it did slightly irritate me the fact that there was meant to be this sort of atmosphere of, of serenity or, or sort of sacredness around it but other people in the audience didn't seem to be respecting that. Do you think it's they weren't respecting it or they weren't necessarily aware of it or necessarily see it in that way? It was for them, it was, here's a here's a performance that we're going to. Yeah, and it's just sort of nice sounds. And often these songs are used in sort of Bollywood music and in Hindi films. So there's other associations other than strictly religious ones. Um, there's also the sense in which there are uh, uh, devotional works which could be um, romantic as well as... Um, uh, uh, sort of religious as well but but I think ultimately the question of cultural appropriation although I, I do have sympathy for the idea that we should have respect for cultural artifacts and objects which maybe we don't have quite the access to or the understanding if they're they're foreign to us I also think that it's possible to um, have interesting crossovers I mean for example in the um, uh, in Sufi music the harmonium which is a which is a an instrument that uh, is very common in Sufi music. And if you hear it immediately starting up, you think, wow, we're in India. 
um, that's actually a British instrument introduced in colonial times for use in churches, which was then borrowed by Indians and then integrated somewhat controversially um, in the late 19th century in um, into Kuali, Kuali music. So you can't escape this kind of cultural cross-pollination, even if you wanted to. Yeah, and also there's also a Lebanese uh, contralto called um, Fadia El-Hajj, who has done Obama Dikh, which is uh, a song from St. Matthew Passion, uh, meaning God have mercy. And she's done it in Arabic as Rahmaika uh, Ya Allah. Um, and she's just translated it into Arabic, given it a different context and used the same tune. And it's a beautiful piece of music, which somehow respects the spirit of Bach in, in a way, but then does transform it into something new as well. What do you think Bach would make of it? I don't know. I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult to know, really. But um, the work is there. It's solely, you know, for the for the glory of God. That's how what he wrote on on the manuscript that he wrote of it. Um, but I think ultimately, once he's written it and it's performed in different contexts, the work does become free of its um, creator's intentions, as it were. So we do have the freedom to do with it what we want. We'll leave it there, Samir Rahim and Alex Dean. Thank you both very much indeed. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now on to our main interview this week where we're chatting with the journalist Kevin Maguire about Labour's deputy leader Tom Watson and his thoughts on the burning question heard around Westminster. What's Tommy up to? You're listening to the Prospect Podcast. I'm joined now by Kevin Maguire uh, from the Daily Mirror. Kevin, hello. Oh, great to be here. Um, we're here to talk about Tom Watson, who uh, you profiled in the new issue of Prospects and also uh, interviewed as well for that piece. Um, one of the really fascinating parts of that interview was when he suggested that he might not be against the idea of joining some form of government of national unity. Um, were you surprised by that? I was surprised. I thought he'd rule it uh, out because it causes problems with the Labour left, uh, those around Corbyn, uh, immediately. I think he knows that. It's partly mischievous, but he did uh, cite his hero, Ernie Bevan, 
of course, the Foreign Secretary and that great reforming uh, Attlee government after the uh, Second World War, uh, that he prefers uh, Labour to rule, but uh, if needs must, he would be prepared to do it. Uh, in one way, you could argue this may be a statement of simple fact, because Labour is very unlikely at the next election to get an overall majority, unless it makes huge inroads into Scotland, which it can't. So it would either be a minority government or it would have to have a coalition, possibly the SNP, Liberal Democrats, whoever else is around. But national unity does suggest Conservatives too. And uh, I know feelers are being put out by some Conservatives to to Tom Watson. Um, Go-betweens have been spoken to. Um, and so that is, it's, it's quite an interesting development given the crisis that Brexit has caused and the paralysis in Parliament. Well, exactly. It is, we're in this situation where... You know, the two main parties are both splitting. We've both lost uh, several MPs in, in the past few weeks where we've got new parties coming through, whether that's the Brexit Party or Change UK, um, which is the independent group of, are now calling themselves. Uh, and even within the parties, you've got these groups, whether it's the uh, European Research Group in the Conservative Party or this group that Watson has set up within the Labour Party, Future Britain. What is that group for? Yeah, the Future Britain group, uh, he says, to hold the party together and give a voice to those MPs. And there's about 130 backing him, which is roughly half the parliamentary party who feel excluded, uh, feel excluded by uh, Jeremy Corbyn, his office, those around him from the Socialist Campaign Group. And it's it, to hold the party together, as he puts it, Gloria de Piero. Uh, Labour MP who is on the front bench and used to share a flat with Tom Watson in the 1970s, or was it 1980s, sorry. Uh, she says, well, it's it's so all strands of red are represented in, in Labour. But it gives them enormous power, that group. And I think as deputy leader, he's probably never been more influential since he was elected in 2015 with, as you mentioned, uh, Change UK, as the the old Tiggers are now calling themselves, you know, eight MPs from Labour split away with three Conservatives. More might have gone, but Watson seems to have held them back with the prospect they'll they'll be heard and have a voice in uh, in the future. But the you know this government of national unity, well, you know, since since Tom Watson, uh, you know, sort of raised this. Of course, we got the. Labour and Conservative government talks on Brexit, where it's almost as if in the interest of national unity, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn's teams are looking for a way forward. I'm very sceptical that they will reach common ground, or that it's uh, capable uh, of, of being found. I can't see what's in it for Labour for uh, a start. I think uh, Theresa May, probably within her own party, can't make the concessions she would need to on a customs union and uh, close alignment on the single market and, of course, dynamic change too. So as laws change in the other 27 countries, it would change in a a UK, a Brexit UK too. I can't see her making that and perhaps it's all about a blame game and who's going to get the the flack when it all breaks down. But nevertheless, there is now a unity or a search for a unity around that huge issue of Brexit. You mentioned his popularity, and certainly within the parliamentary party, he's popular, and within the parliamentary party, he's probably as powerful as he's ever been. What about, though, within the party as a whole, within the membership? Because, yes, he was elected by the membership, but it was, you know, he was up against 
four other people and you know the amount of first preference votes he got wasn't you know wasn't huge it wasn't corbyn style um is there you know are there people is there a, a a groundswell of people within the party who you think see themselves as Watsonites rather than Corbynites? I think he strikes a chord with a lot of councillors who feel um, under pressure as there are moves, for instance, that all party members in an area would elect the council leader or the leader of the Labour group if they're in opposition instead of councillors. Uh, Watson, uh, Watson opposes that. He wants the traditional way of councillors elect the leader. So you get issues like that and you will find in local government he's very popular. But if you talking about the membership of a, as a whole, the 500,000 plus, uh, what we're continually told is the largest political party in uh, in, in Western Europe. Uh, I think there there is some some resentment, but that comes from those on uh, the momentum side or the, or the Corbynistas. You can often see it on social media. Maybe a small number who are incredibly vocal and hostile to him, but I think uh, I pick up from other MPs. They will talk now and they'll be sympathetic to Tom Watson himself, but he's become a lightning rod for a lot of the the criticism. Uh, of course, the eight MPs have gone. They got a lot of abuse at one time, but he has stayed and the, the deputy leader's taken a, a, lo- a lot of heat on the, on the ground. It's not to say he hasn't got his friends and he hasn't got his supporters. And I hear trade union general secretaries who certainly privately will be very sympathetic and supportive, uh, less so um, publicly, it must be It must be said. But there's, but there's no doubt he hasn't got the following in the, in the country that Corbyn has. You can look at his career in one way and think, um, you know, this is a guy whose um, well, yeah, well, first jobs was for the Labour Party, then went into the trade union movement. Uh, was a, a sort of trade union fixer in the in the nineties, and then became a a Labour MP. He's a professional politician, and yet there's another way of looking at his story and saying, well, he's from uh, a working class background. Uh, he went to university late as a mature student. Um, he's he's not one of these you know clean cut special advisor boys who've who've risen up. No, no, he hasn't. He spent the first month in the you know sleeping in a drawer from his grandmother's chest and. Uh their house. His, his dad worked as a dustman and a delivery driver for a bakery company in in Sheffield. His his mother was a was a secretary. There's no silver spoon there. Uh, he left school at 17 without completing his A levels. A careers advisor told him that if he booked up his ideas and worked harder, he might get an apprenticeship in one of the carpet factories in Kidderminster where they'd uh, they'd moved to. He didn't fancy that. Moved to London age 17, uh, wasn't quite sure what he was going to do, got a job with the Labour Party, he was an apprentice assistant librarian, thought it was going to be over almost immediately when there was a a social uh, and he invited a friend who'd moved down from Kidderminster to London with him and the the friend scrawled on a fourth floor wall in Labour's HQ then in Walworth Road, Tom Watson uh, for L President, uh, large graffiti Watson thought, right, that's it. I'm, I'm for the chop. But uh, Larry Whitty, the general secretary at the at the time, was uh, was rather kindly and pat- uh, patrician rather than vengeful, and he made Watson get a, a bucket of soapy water and a scrubbing brush. And he took him up to the fourth floor, and he watched as Watson had to get rid of the the, the graf- graffiti. Um, and you know, he stayed. He stayed working in Labour Party jobs. He it was unquestionably uh, that he had a little spell at university. He didn't finish his degree. Went to Hull as an older student. Uh, time out in m- marketing. Um, 
the madman advertising world, which he uh, put his toe in, wasn't uh, wasn't for him. He was back back the Labour Party ninety seven election. Worked for the AWU, which is now part of United, but it was on the right of the of the Labour movement and became a, an MP in two thousand one. You're quite right. His career has been in politics. In that sense, you would say he is a professional politician. But he's not from Oxford or, or Cambridge. He had no golden you know, Willy Wonka ticket straight to the top. He had to get there with uh, with graft, and he and he earned uh, a reputation as a fixer and a bruiser um, in part because he was a fixer and a bruiser. There's no doubt he was uncompromising in battles in by elections, particularly against Liberal Democrats. Uh, yeah, and, and well, pretty nasty stuff that he was. Um I don't want to go as far as say responsible for, but the campaigns that he was running put out some pretty nasty leaflets at times. He fought fire with fire against Liberal Democrats, as he, uh, I think he would, put, he would put it. They never took any prisoners themselves, and uh, he was equally doing uh, doing the same. There was a, a, a by-election up in uh, Birmingham, uh, I think it was Hodge Hill. Hodge Hill, yeah, William yeah. Byrne. And the the uh, Liberal Democrat um, opponent had once worked for a mobile phone company, so they uh, they dubbed her um, uh, Nokia Nikki, I think it was. It was something you know with the name of uh, yeah, her mobile her name phone, was Nicola Davis. Yeah, and yeah, they, they really Nokia went for yeah. it. She wanted a mobile phone mast everywhere outside your school and so on. And this was in an era when mobile phones weren't as common. And so, therefore, there was lots of concern about radio waves and so on. They're going to fry your brain. You're going to get cancer and so on. I remember, I remember the era. But they won the by-election. And on the same day, there was a by-election in, in Leicester. And Labour were expecting to hold Leicester and lose Hodge Hill. In fact, they won or held Hodge Hill and they lost Leicester. Um, during that time... Um he was known by some as Tommy Two Dinners. Uh, he was, I think it's not unreasonable to say, he drank quite a lot. Um, he's got a very different um, reputation now, hasn't he? W- w- what's happened in that intervening time? Yeah, I'll put my hand up and admit I sometimes uh, ate and drank a lot with him. I was there when he got the Tommy Two Dinners um uh, tag and it was uh, Mark Seddon who was then the editor of Tribute. I remember the three of us went to lunch in the Gay Hazar, a Hungarian haunt in Soho, uh, loved by the left, now shut uh, sa- uh, sadly. And we, we went for lunch and it was a long lunch, I will uh, I will admit, uh, and a lot was uh, you know, um, drunk. We, you know, we really had a go at the old grapes. Uh, and then, by chance, they were both due back that evening in the gay uh, gay hussar uh, for a, for a dinner with Christopher Hitchens, who was over from New York, and I was going out with my wife and two friends. I had to go back to the same restaurant. Uh, I could hardly eat or drink. I'll admit <laughs> when I got back, but but they um, they didn't leave the restaurant. I went back to work and you know pressed a few wrong buttons on a you know, on a computer. But they stayed and they went upstairs. Uh, and the then manager John Robel um, found a couple of makeshift beds for them, and they uh, they both had a you know, had a kip before they went down for their for their uh, second time around. And it was Seddon who then sold a diary item to <laughs> to the evening standard Londoner's diary calling Watson Tommy Two Dinners leaving himself out of course in the I best really... journalistic tradition uh, Seddon but of course what uh, 
what Watson uh, always said, and he laughs about it, but I think there's a slight resentment there. Is uh, Seddon also left out that uh, in between uh, lunch and dinner, he said and also had uh, what we would delicately call an upset stomach. Uh, right, but nevertheless, but no, he, he was he, he was he was hard living. Mm. No, there's no question. Uh, it was an era, I think, when certainly um, politicians and journalists drank more, and liquid lunches were were quite common. And yeah, Tom, um, Tom Watson, who got you know, he's, he's a big guy then. He was a big, he's a big guy as he knows, and now he's he's lost something like more than seven stones on a diet which involves putting uh, butter in his coffee, uh, avoiding sugar, a lot less uh, alcohol, he meditates, uh, he's interested in Buddhism, although he's not a Buddhist. Um, no, he's, a, he's a much more chilled, thoughtful character, although even in that era when he was, uh, he was a, a bruiser and a fixer, he was also, he, he was more thoughtful and we often gave him credit for because he likes to read poetry, reads a lot of, of novels, he reads a lot of a lot of books. But you know, in the brutal politics of of, of the eighties and the nineties and into the into the noughties, he was there for the hand to hand combat. Do you think his politics have have changed over the years as well? I think he's mellowed. Uh, he, he's changed on issues such as uh, electoral reform. He used to run the Labour campaign to keep first past the post. Now he's open to electoral reform. And once you're open to electoral reform, you're, op- you're open to far more consensus politics, which I suppose could take us full circle to uh, you're not as hostile to the Liberal Democrats, and you could see a government of national unity or, or bit of those coalitions, those packs, arrangements, however loose or firm they, they would be. And I think he... He treats his opponents probably with more consideration than respect he once did, uh, and that he would take uh, some prisoners uh, now. He would no longer have them all slaughtered uh, and vanquished com- completely. And he was known very much as uh, a Brownite in those Labour battles between the Blairites and the Brownites, which, given Labour's out of power, gone to the left, uh, we've we've had all these years of austerity. Look, the kind of trivial disputes which were just massively magnified yeah. G- the Gordon time. is slightly less keen on foundation hospitals yeah, ex- yeah exactly exactly the world's not ended with foundation hospitals because of course the argument was you can't have foundation hospitals because you can't allow a hospital to go go bust well hospitals are running up huge debts all the time and of course they'll never be allowed to go bust because you couldn't but it is at the, at the time these were big 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 battles and some of them were personalities some of them were were politics and he was certainly he was a brownite uh, Unquestionably, Brown had far more interest in the wider labour movement, trade unions. Uh, he had a greater emphasis on reducing poverty because they were you know, promoting tax credits, for instance, uh, than than Blair. And it was almost as if you were friendly or you had a foot in one camp, the other camp would would just see you as the enemy. Blairites did it at Brownites, Brownites did it at Blairites. So he got pulled closer and closer in, uh, into Planet Brown and away uh, away from the world of Blair. There's one story from that era that I want you to talk about just because it, it helps shine a light on why some Corbyn supporters now are wary of Tom Watson and see him as, as a threat. And that is uh, the Curry House plot. So Tom Watson at the time was a, a, a very junior minister, he was a defence minister. Yeah, he was a, a 2006. He was a, a, a defence minister. 
the Blair the Blair era was going to end sometime. No one quite knew when it was going to when it was going to end. Uh, but uh, Gordon Brown thought he had a promise that that uh, Blair would do one term, no more than two terms. Certainly disputed by Blair, but nevertheless, you can go back in 1994 and Granita Pact, if, if indeed there was a pact. But Brown felt there was uh, a promise. Uh, and Blair had made quite clear before the 2005 election he would he would go at some time. He'd had a minor heart complaint. He'd bought a house in Connaught Square in London, which looked as if he was planning ahead. But he intended to to go on, and no one quite knew how long he was going to go go on. And 2006, there were a lot of issues were were, were coming together, and there's no doubt Tom Watson was at the centre of. We call it a plot. It felt more like a riot, really, to to get rid of uh, Blair. He was the most senior figure involved as a as a minister, as you say. He was a junior minister, but he was a minister, and the rest, uh, who included Ian Austin, um, Chris Bryant, and so on, and it was some Blairites, some Bryant, um, some uh, Blairites and Brownites, but they were, they were PPSs or just backbench MPs. But of course, a load of them signed a letter saying Blair needed to to go. And Watson resigned before Blair could sack him, and Blair accused him of being incredibly rude. But he was right at the heart of it, and some of them had met in the West Midlands in a in a in a, in a curry house. Now, Watson maintains that was not where this was was plotted. He disputes the level of coordination and would assert it was rather more spontaneous and lots of other people coming together. But for what you know what. Uh, organization there was he was there and involved in it and it's why if he helped get rid of Blair Blair gone, was gone within a year and the Corbynites fear that he could organize something in future ag- against uh, them and of course we can and do you think they do you think he could or do you think actually he is uh, sort of reconciled to the fact that Corbyn is very popular with the membership and that you know he it might he might not be his cup of tea but He's the leader, and until you know the next election is out of the way, yeah. there's nothing you can do. Yeah, it's, in some ways, he and Corbyn uh, are an odd couple. And in 2015, when Corbyn stormed the leadership uh, and won very, very, very comfortably, and Watson was was elected uh, less emphatically, but he won on the third uh, the third ballot less emphatically as deputy. They were they were very different characters, and there wasn't really a a Corbynite. Running for the for the deputy leadership, Angela Eagle was seen as the the most left wing uh, character. But they, you know, but they they seemed to work together, and they had a, a meeting in the chief whip's office just after the election result. The election result uh, was announced a, a day later, and they kind of got a an operational you know, way of of going forward. And Corbyn accepted uh, you know, Tom pushing that. They wouldn't. Uh, he wouldn't want to get rid of Trident. Um, um, we would campaign to keep Britain in Europe, and wouldn't really reopen the selection system. So wouldn't threaten MPs. But of course, then you go to 2016, and the coup against uh, in Westminster, the attempted coup against C- Corbyn. Um, Tom Watson was at Glastonbury uh, when Hillary Benn. Resigned it was just after the European elections. Of course, that shock result: fifty-one point nine percent, you know, wanted out. 
uh, Corbyn had campaigned for a yes vote, but it not enthusiastically given staying in seven to seven and a half percent. And I went to some of these meetings, and it was you, 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 you could you could sometimes barely mention Europe. But anyway, they. Yeah, there was this uprising. Uh, Watson says, "Well, you know, he was uh, he was getting you know drunk in a in a in a tent in Glastonbury, and then going to a silent disco when it was all colla- uh, you know, collapsing around uh, Corbyn in in Westminster." Uh, and he, again, he says, "Look, I did not orchestrate this, but there's no doubt after that he believed from he says somebody in Corbyn's office Corbyn was gonna gonna resign, and then when he didn't." He was against automatically putting Corbyn onto the ballot paper at the National Executive Committee. Thought he would have to get the nominations from MPs, which, of course, Corbyn, in these circumstances, wouldn't have reached. So, in a, in a way, you can see why the the people around Corbyn are very suspicious. Because if that vote had been carried on Labour's National Executive, Corbyn wouldn't be the, wouldn't be the leader now. So, they fear he might try it down the line. But I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think he... I think he sued for peace, uh, as I've uh, been told. He put it after the 2017 general election in a in a very pro Corbyn speech at Labour's uh, annual conference. But the the people around Corbyn now are less uh, less willing to to embrace him and accept that, and they feel stronger. So they feel they don't need him. Well, I think that's changed now, actually, because of the creation of Change UK, which um, Watson says privately can't win an election, but they can stop Labour winning an election by taking votes away in marginal seats. And if other MPs are tempted or threatening to go and join that group, because they're so disaffected, then Watson's stopping them leaving and holding them back, Um, particularly uh, some of Labour's uh, MPs who are of Jewish heritage, Or then I, I think that makes him unchallengeable. We'll leave it there. Kevin Maguire, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that's all for this week. Thank you to Alex Dean, Samir Rahim and Kevin Maguire. Don't forget you can read Kevin's profile of Tom Watson in the May issue of Prospect, which is on newsstands now. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. It helps other listeners to find us. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. My name is Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.